Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today we're going to be talking about semi-forgotten bands of the early 2000s. I'm calling it the underbelly of the Meet Me in the Bathroom generation. The bands that came out after the Strokes hit it big and tried to follow in their footsteps to, to, to capture the zeitgeist. People with scruffy hair and leather jackets playing vintage-sounding guitars and all that kind of stuff. Um, I have a lot of affection for this era, I guess because I remember it at the time. It's interesting when we talk about movements in music history because you always have these trendsetters that come along, whether it's the Strokes, Nirvana, whoever it is. And then there's a whole bunch of other bands that kind of follow in their footsteps. Some of them were already bands, you know, they're contemporaries of the trendsetter, and they end up breaking through. But a lot of other bands are just sort of ripping them off. You know, they're capitalizing on what is popular in the moment, and they're trying to get an audience because that's where the trend is. And those rip-off bands don't have a lot of authenticity, of course. And, they, you know, we don't end up remembering them. They don't get written into rock history. We never talk about them sort of changing the culture or anything like that. But when you go back and you revisit certain eras in music history. A lot of times it's the rip-off artists who have the songs that you have the most affection for, you know, because they don't have the baggage that the trendsetters do. You know, I love the Strokes, but I don't really need to hear Is This It again. You know, that's been fully sort of integrated into my DNA at this point. But there are a lot of other records from that time that are less heralded that I do like to revisit. And I think deserve to be talked about because even if they aren't changing the world, they are still really well-crafted. And there's a lot of enjoyment that you can still get from listening to these records. Um, This podcast was inspired by a band called The Stills, who are a band from Montreal, Canada. They put out their debut record in 2003. It's called Logic Will Break Your Heart. That record came out 15 years ago this month, which accounts for the timing of this podcast. Again, Logic Will Break Your Heart. You can listen to it. You can pick out the references. You can hear a little bit of Echo and the Bunnymen, a little bit of U2, even a little bit of Interpol. You know, Interpol was the band that this band was most compared to at the time. And again, you could call them a ripoff. You could call them carpetbaggers, whatever you want to call them. But to me, it's still a really good record. And I think it's an example of what I was talking about, how sometimes the second-tier bands that we forget about have a lot of pleasures to offer, and they deserve to be rediscovered, even if they're not going to be part of an oral history or a documentary about the time. So I called up our good friend here at Celebration, Rocky and Cohen, because I know that he has a similar affection for a lot of the bands of this era. And we both brought up three bands that we really like from that time. And uh, I think it's going to be interesting. If, if you were listening to music at that time, I think you're going to remember some of these bands that you might have forgotten. Uh, Bands like Secret Machines, Hot Hot Heat, The Bravery, Long Wave, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. (laughs) You know, no one is really talking about these bands now, but I would argue that they all have at least two or three really great songs. And in some cases, some of them have like one really great record. After that, 
in many cases, they, they sort of fell apart, you know, and they quickly faded away and were swept up in the dustbin of history. But, you know, how many bands have even one great song, much less a great record? You know, it's a pretty great thing to even achieve that much. So we're tipping our cap here to some of the more unsung rock bands of the early 2000s in this episode. So it's a really great conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's me, Ian Cohen. So you and I were talking just amongst ourselves about this era of indie rock that was in the early 2000s, which we'll call the return of rock era. Which I, I define it, and maybe you feel differently, we can get into this later, but I, in my mind I kind of define it between like like the release of Is This It to the first Killers record. Like that, like 2001 to 04, 05, there was this wave of bands, and it wasn't even indie rock because a lot of these bands were signed to like big labels, but it was this thing of like chasing bands that people thought were sort of like the strokes or maybe they looked like the strokes you know it was like four or five you know dudes with like scruffy hair playing Mm -hmm. guitars and there was a whole rash of these bands and you know when we talk about that era you know like the meet me in the bathroom type new york stuff people talk about you know there's stuff like the white stripes the vines the hives those i guess you would call them top tier garage rock bands and then there's like the second tier bands that Mm -hmm. aren't as well remembered and those were the bands that you and I were talking about just amongst ourselves. Bands that might have only had like one like pretty good record or like maybe even just like one like great song that was like on a record that was solid. <laughs> and then they kind of fizzled out after that like when they put out their second record in like 06, 07, 08. People were sort of bored by them at that time. But um, I'm just wondering, I mean, because I feel some affection for those bands now and i feel a lot of i guess you could even call it nostalgia even though at the time i feel like people were uh pretty skeptical mm-hmm. of a lot of these bands that again they seem like maybe you know some of them seem like they were sort of chasing the trends or like they were carpetbaggers or whatever uh what are your feelings like looking back on that now i mean because i know because you and i kind of feel the same way now we have some affection for those bands at the time were you more skeptical of some of these groups well when you know, I think what we're kind of exploring here is just the sense with, like, any sort of uh, trend or whatever, like, where, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, you know? Like, a lot of the bands that got, like, the same way a lot of bands that, you know, you might not consider, like, grunge or whatever were, you know, uplifted by that influx of money. Um, you know, a lot of bands that we're going to be talking about today really don't have a whole lot to do. Like, they may have started before the Strokes, um, and they may not have had much to do with them, but, you know, it's like, uh, at the same time, they all kind of came together, um, and were considered, you know, part of this new rock revolution. It was just this sort of thing that, um, and, you know, obviously people will be skeptical of these bands because, you know, like, it seems like once labels start throwing around money, it's, you know, it's like, you know, it's like playing like scratch and wins. Like that's what these (laughs) bands were seen as, you know? Right. And, well, and what inspired this conversation between us was talking about the Stills, this mm-hmm. band from from Montreal. And um, you know, <laughs> it's funny when we talk about anniversaries. Like, there's always the anniversary pegs with albums when we talk about them. And like, I feel like I've been doing 15th anniversaries a lot lately, which seems like a little bit of a cheat mm-hmm. because you know it should be 10 or 20 or or five. But anyway, the 15th anniversary of the first Stills record, Logic will break your heart. 
is this month. I think it came out October 21st, 2003. And I'm pretty sure no one is going to do a think piece on this record. So I felt like in some way we have to mark the release of this record because it's one of those albums that like I don't think anyone would ever say this is a this is like an era defining masterpiece or this album made people hear music in a different way or you know it's a landmark. It's just like a really nice indie rock record that uh whenever I revisit it it sounds better and better. Like it, it's just like a it's a well executed it you know it's it's a it's a testament to craft, you know, type record. Uh, that again, like it, it never blows anyone's minds, but it's the kind of album that I think tends to age really well. And um, the Stills, if you don't remember them, they were a band they formed in 2000. Uh, they're a four-piece from Montreal. Uh, they they put out Logic Will Break Your Heart, their debut album in 2003. It was preceded by an EP called Rememberies, which is a terrible title. But this was a band that was kind of grouped in with the post-punk revival of the time. I know they were compared to Interpol a lot. Uh, although when I listen to it now, I can hear some of that Interpol, you know, like you know, I I can see why that comparison was made. But to me, it, it it's more reminiscent of like Love Is Hell era Ryan Adams. I, I know I think I think the tour, Stills actually toured with Ryan Adams around that time. It has that sort of really lush, grand '80s rock sound. Um, maybe even slightly emo-ish in places, like a little bit of a Death Cab for Cutie type thing, although I don't think the band would have ever acknowledged that at the time. <laughs> um, but it's just a really nice record, and I think it's an example of how when you have these great movements in music, you know, you always have the people at the front of the line pushing it forward, and then you have the bands in sort of the uh, the jet stream of those other bands, and and again, they're not changing the world they're not revolutionizing everything but in those spaces there's still a lot of room for craft and just well-written songs and sometimes those are the albums that you enjoy revisiting more <laughs> you know when you go back and that's always my experience with this album like I, you know i don't necessarily need to play the strokes records from that time maybe just because i overplayed them um but if i want to hear like a like a early 2000s rock record Logic will break your heart. Just always seems to kind of push those buttons for mm-hmm. me in a way that maybe some of the like the the, the first tier records don't. Like, like, what are your impressions of this album? You know, I think that you, you mentioned it's like maybe not like a definitive work at the time because like it's not like canonical. Like it's not the sort of thing that like gets into whenever we do like our best of the two thousands or whatever. But it is kind of definitive in its own way, where in the same sense of like you know what was happening at that time and like the overall picture and i think that the stills like is kind of definitive of it because it sits at the intersection of like all these things you know it does have you know just the name the still similar to the strokes the vines um and like interpol and like some of the bands we're going to be talking about later they pull from the same sort of grand 80s like because i mean you want to call this an indie rock record maybe but i mean it was produced like it sounds incredible like it's there is not a lot of like indie rock production values on it. And it also does kind of like touch on, I mean, if you want to talk about like, you know, emo is defined by like death cab or like what it would be on the OC, then yeah, it's that too. It's kind of got that kind of like maundering, like self pitying, but also kind of self aware uh, part to it. And I think you put up a good point of why this one perhaps sounds so good and so easy to revisit because there's absolutely no baggage to it at all. Um, you know, except for 
you know, whatever. If you were our age back in like 2003, perhaps you would have seen these guys, you know, kind of being frauds or whatever because they just sound like so slick and so well-crafted and so stylized. But, I mean, I was talking about this with a friend of mine who was, you know, he's about my age, and he doesn't really keep up with, you know, he his favorite band of like the past 20 years is The National or whatever. So that shows you how much he like keeps up with the times. But, you know, when you he said to me, like when he was living in Richmond, Virginia, like in 2001, like, like you would hear Is This It at every single bar. Um, and the same with me. It's like with Interpol, Turn On The Bright Lights, that's what I was listening to every time I visited my friends in New York in 2002. So those are pretty inextricable from like, you know, my life experience at the time. Like, those were just such formative, like, you know, as a, a, as a budding person becoming aware of, like, you know, the, the lineage of rock and roll. But, like, the stills, it was just, like, it was just kind of around. <laughs> and it never, you know, defined any period of time. It was They were never on any magazines. I don't recall seeing any videos of them ever. But it's just definitive in a way where it's, like, the same way, like someone brought up um, on Twitter the other day that it's sort of, maybe not even like the third, first Third Eye Blind album, but like it was just one of those things where like, you know, like with the Gin Blossoms or bands of that kind of tier where you didn't, where they were just around if you were around. Right. They weren't like on magazines. They weren't like uh, revolutionizing anything. But if you were just existing and remotely aware of what was going on. You just kind of stumbled upon a band like the stills and, uh, it kind of just, it, it just kind of like get there by osmosis in the same way that like a lot of, um, you know, supposedly like post grunge or alt rock band people are like, you know what? They had some good songs. Um, when removed from like the time, it's like, I think that's what the stills are as well. And this record really holds up. It's very, um, each one kind of puts its own sort of, you know, vibe to it. And, you know, there's like the quote political songs and like right. the kind of more shimmery, like Echo and the Bunnymen sort of thing. And, um, you know, does it have any like sort of personality? I mean, it does have a personality and that's kind of like elegantly wasted dejection, but like there's no stilled sound, you know? Right. And, and that's the thing about it is that in a way, the lack of personality helps it in the long run because. Mm-hmm. Again, if you hear the vines now, that seems so early two thousands. I mean, it's so tied to the era. Whereas yeah. I think the Stills record, if it came out like next week, it would sound like twenty eighteen. It, it just sounds like sort of beautifully produced, grandiose, indieish rock. Yeah. And in a way that you could say that that just means it's generic. But I also feel like. It's also really well done, and the songs are really good. I mean, I, to me, this is like one of the best examples of a record from that era that no one remembers if they weren't like in their twenties or teens and into rock music in like two thousand three. You know, like if you were if you're a little bit older than that, you know, two thousand three, or you know, you were like in you know elementary school. You know, no one remembers the Stills, but like for a very narrow group of people, like this is kind of a touchstone record, I feel like. Yeah. It's definitely an album that if you read rock magazines or websites, you heard about this album and you were like, oh, this is like the next rock band that well, I have to care about. And then they went away. Although it, this album too has like one of the all-time great um, 
inscrutable pitchfork reviews. <laughs> I was just going to bring that up. Like the William Bauer. Well, I mean, William Bowers wrote a lot of reviews like that. At he's that a wild dude. I met him in person a few times, and then he he's a cool he's a cool dude. And I think this this era we're talking about too is like also kind of like the last of the wild west era of pitchfork or like blogs in general. So it's really fun to go back and see how like records of like bands like the ones we're going to be talking about were treated back then i was going to say like i i uh, so pitchfork gave this record a 5.1 and the the money quote for me from this review is he wrote the stills are a complicated case inspiring equal amounts of pleasure and horror like that dream in which everyone has mozzarella genitals <laughs> i think that says it all although i like the record more than that i, I that's a really good quote um so yeah, you. But I feel like you read that and you're like, oh, I still want to hear this record. I mean, yeah. I want to hear the mozzarella genitals record. <laughs> um, you're gonna talk about a band now that I think, maybe unlike the Stills, I think the Stills probably were always a band that had like one really good record in them, and then they were probably gonna be done. Without feathers is not a good record. Yeah, I'll just tell you that. Well, yeah, exactly. Like, the, yeah, the record they put out after 2006, they they kind of turned into like a full fledged Americana band with that record, and I kind of feel like okay. They were in that sort of Interpol vibe in 2003. By 06, that's when you're starting to see, like, okay, like the Connor Orburst, um, it's Wide Awake, It's Morning thing. Like, the, Indie Rock had kind of turned more Americana-ish by then, so then they turned more Americana-ish. Like, so they were definitely one of those bands that was going to, like, sort of soak in what was happening elsewhere and put that, in, put that onto their record, and they just weren't as good as at the Americana thing as they were at the sort of post-punk thing mm-hmm. um but this next band though that, that you're going to talk about i think is like kind of like a lost band from this era like I, they're a band that to me really was great and maybe could have had a longer career if things had just gone differently for them but it didn't work out like do you, would you say that like who, who, who are you going to talk about well i believe we're going to be talking about the secret machine yes and um yeah that you this is once again another and in, in, very indicative of how like, there were so many of these kind of, like, side tributaries of this new rock revolution, but, like, in retrospect, they all kind of, like, jumbled together to the point where one of the guys ended up playing for Interpol, even though they were from, like, Texas. Yeah. And, you know, clearly had nothing at all to do with that uh, sort of wave. And the interesting thing about their first record, Now Here Is Nowhere, like, I, like you know, you did your retrospective on dates and confused i mean like these kids you know they were like guys from texas and their first record um it is clearly like zeppelin laser floyd um (laughs) stuff that like had very little to do with the kind of like cosmopolitan uh too cool new york sort of thing happening with like the strokes or even like the garage rock kind of shittiness of not shittiness like bad but like kind of like dirty and like dangerous sort of thing with like uh, the White Stripes and the Von Bondies and all them. Like, secret, like, Now Here Is Nowhere is, like, a classic rock record. Um, the production, much like the stills, is just, like, immaculate. I'm, to this, like, you will find few rock records with a better-sounding low end um, and a bigger rhythm section, which, you know, is just, like, I think kind of the secret weapon with a lot of these bands, particularly with, like, Sam from Interpol or even the rhythm section for The Strokes, but... Man, the Secret Machines, it's just, you kind of look back on that one, and it's like, they had, they could, they could, I mean, you know, one of the guys, like, you know, unfortunately passed away, but, like, you figured they could have been, like, one of the big, like, festival rock bands of that time, you know? 
Yeah, and you mentioned the classic rock influences, which are definitely apparent. I mean, just the drums on that record are so just like John Bonham, When the Levee Breaks type, you know, just humongous sounding drum breaks on that record, which you never really hear that as much now. No. With, with, with like, ba- like, like, I mean, drums are always like the most problematic part, I think, of most bands, and there just aren't a whole lot of like super talented drummers going around, at least playing in rock bands. No. But, um, with with the secret machines and their classic rock influences, it's not slavish about it though. It's not like they're wearing the beads and the bandanas and you know, it's not like a Greta Van Fleet thing going on with them. They were able to incorporate that stuff into this sort of you know, sort of futuristic sounding package. It was a way to take the sort of bombast of that older music and kind of fuse it with like you know, like more of like a kraut rock type influence. Mm-hmm. And and really, I guess maybe kind of like a futuristic space rock type thing, where it, again, it didn't seem like it didn't seem overtly retro. It seemed like it was kind of taking the power of that music and and, and pushing it forward. And yeah, then, it's not I mean, all that different than like I guess like what you would describe Tame Impala doing today, right? But like we're asked like Tame Impala is like more in tune with the vibiness, I suppose, of like the current. Uh, you know, state of music, like Secret Machines were like a rock band. Like there was no confusing them like with anything else. I mean, it, you know, their the album cover is like all white and their gear. Right. <laughs> and I think that kind of helps out with the futuristic because like it looks like it, it looks like a, in the inside of a space shuttle. Right. Yeah, it looks amazing. And, and I mean, that record was really well regarded. It came out in, in 2004, so a little bit toward the end of this wave. But they put out their second record uh, in 06, Ten Silver Drops. And it's a record that I like quite a bit, but I feel like in general this album wasn't that well regarded. It was more of an 80s-sounding record, a little bit more U2-ish in parts. Yeah. And I know they ended up like supporting U2 uh, around this time. Uh, on tour but then after that you know the band starts to fall apart Benjamin Curtis who was like one of the front men of the band he he left the band in 07 and uh, and then he as you mentioned he passed away in 2013 from from lymphoma he he, he formed the band School of Seven Bells which I know a lot of people you know the, there's they're pretty part- good yeah there's some partisans out there for, for me but like again like uh, Now Here Is Nowhere I just remember that record coming out and feeling like oh yeah this is going to be the arena band that comes from this scene. They just seemed like they were, they had a big enough sound and just enough muscle uh, that they could have ascended to that kind of status. And uh, it was, was, even now, like when I revisit that record, I'm kind of disappointed that like there aren't like 10 Secret Machines albums. Yeah. Like I feel like they should have been that band. I think, you know, but you have to like consider that like 10 Silver Drops, I mean like the first half of that record is like pretty awesome because it sounds like you too. Right. And then... Oh, yeah, Alone, Jealous, and Stone, the first yeah, track. Yeah, it sounds like Don't Stop Believing, like, the first, <laughs> like, that's what I hear when I first, uh, when that, when the keyboards come in, but... Right. Yeah, I mean, like, and they actually released an album after that, I think it was self-titled, where, you know, it's pretty clear that the, um, you know, the inspiration, or at least the, um, you know, the, the inter-band chemistry was gone, so it's not like they, you know, it's not like an unfortunate situation where, like, you know, they kind of broke up like at the peak. Yeah. Like it's just like, man, you, you really would have thought after that first one that, or maybe they just like kind of killed it on the first record. Where yeah. It's just like, that was cause it sounded like so, 
so fully formed and so like grand. It's like most bands don't get to that one until like the third record. Right. Yeah, so, and, and, and I I mean I like the second record a lot. Ten Silver Drops I think is like a really good record. It's interesting though because they went in a less aggressive direction on the second one and it did get more vibey. Mm-hmm. Which in a way, you know, maybe they were ahead of their time on that. Yeah, I feel like that is something that like like the big rock bands now, like the ones that kind of go in the more vibey, less overtly yeah, sort of Warren rock Drugs, direction. Yeah, Warren Drugs, Tam- yeah, bands like that, they seem to do well. I, I wonder like if at the time if they had made a maybe a harder rocking second record, mm-hmm. if that would have made a difference. Like just amp up the drums and have just some louder guitars. Yeah, you know, well, maybe that would have helped. I don't know. I'm the, speculating. Well, 2006 was just kind of like a transition period where I don't know if like what would have really worked for them. That's true. They were like, yeah, the, that's like when things started getting beardy and uh, yeah, that's like kind of where that a lot sort of, of flannel shirts and all. Yeah, that. it's like post OC. Well, I think what we're really talking about when you mentioned like you know being bracketed by uh, the Strokes, it's like more like new rock revolution. It's like new rock revolution, and then you have like the OC. And that's the cutoff point. Yeah. And I, somewhere in the middle, you have like the Garden State. I feel like the Killers to me makes sense just because I feel like they were like sort of the ultimate band that was inspired by the Strokes, but then they actually became more popular than the Strokes. Yeah. You know, they, they usurped them. And mm-hmm. they, and it's also the pinnacle of, of, of taking it away from the griminess of New York, that whole sort of iconography and, and making it brighter and more danceable well the irony of that is um when you read the when, especially in like uh, meet me in the bathroom like uh you know they all resent the killers for you know <laughs> take, doing the exact thing that you mentioned yeah whereas the the kind of irony of it is that like the strokes um interpol like uh, even the yeah 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 i mean those are rich kids right um you know they may have been living like in really grimy conditions because you know they had the opportunity to do so but i mean like the, the Killers, and particularly Kings of Leon as well, like they come from, like the Killers came from more of like kind of a working class, even though they're from Vegas, like more of like a working class. So like, of course, we're going to try to like be commercial sort of mindset, which really triggered the resentment of a lot of the New York people, which it's so interesting that like they're seen as like kind of the not grimy, like sort of, <laughs> um, sort of band in that conversation. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, they all wish they could have written Mr. Brightside. You know, there's so many bands that were trying to write Mr. Brightside, and they they, they couldn't write that one huge song that lasts forever. Um, including a band that I'm going to talk about next, and I think you have mixed feelings on this band, but I have affection for them, you know, even though it's qualified affection, and and, and that's Longwave. Mm-hmm. Longwave was a band. Uh, they actually formed before, you know, the Strokes became a huge band. They formed in 1999, so they were in a way, contemporaries of like a lot of these other New York bands, um, more successful bands. But I know for me personally, like I, I first heard about Longwave because they were friends with the Strokes. Mm-hmm. And that's how they were always written about at the time. Like, oh, these are like their friends. <laughs> and um, and they kind of look like the Strokes in their music videos. And uh, they put out their first album in 2003. It's called uh, The Strangest Things. And um, this is an album that... like. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll stump for the Stills record being a really good record. I, I, I do think that's really good. The Long Wave record, uh, Strangest Things, I think is a pretty good record. <laughs> you know, like I, I would give it like a like a low sevens. 
on the pitchfork scale, maybe at upper sixes. But it does have, I think, a, a perfect song at the start of the record called Wake Me When It's Over. The first track, which whenever I think about this era, that's like one of the songs that kind of mm-hmm. puts me back into that time uh, where, again, it's like what we're talking about here, where it, the, the trappings of the band are that they're this cool New York you know, street-level band. But this song is so arena rock. I mean, it's just an enormous drum beat. You know, I think like, Dave Friedman produced that one, right? Dave Friedman, yeah, did it. So, yeah, it's got the Dave Friedman-sounding drums. You know, there's this sort of grandiose, like, kind of, like, Mellotron playing in the background. You know, the vocal is, you know, it's definitely more Bono than Iggy Pop, you know? Yeah. Like, it's that kind of, like, aspirational, like, singing to the heavens type thing. And... I always love that song when I play this record, and then the rest of the record's pretty good after that, but a lot of these bands uh, from this time, you know, they were kind of good for that. Like, there were so many bands that like had like one really great song, and maybe that was it. Yeah. But um, I kind of appreciate that about this era of bands, and maybe that speaks to them being on major labels, and labels probably hearing songs like that, and like wanting, that's why they wanted to spotlight them. Maybe they heard one song that they liked. Because, I mean, there's like a lot of bands now that are, that are pretty good, but they don't have like that one song that is perfect. Or maybe they do, but like I mean, back back in two thousand three, um, you know, we still had uh, a semblance of like a music industry or like some kind of like monoculture. Where like a band at this time, like two thousand one and two, I worked at an alternative rock radio station. So I mean, those things still a, existed, and they would play new bands and. Right now, there just isn't like the infrastructure for, you know, or the money for that matter. I mean, like a, a major label could throw that kind of promotion at, you know, a long wave and make that video and get them on TV. And you know what? Like maybe one of those songs exists now, but like, you know, maybe it just passes me by or it's like you don't hear it enough times. Or you don't have like, or, or like you said, with the production of some of these albums, like they just sound immaculate, you know, in yeah, they do not at all. Well, I mean, they're not indie rock records. Um, but, yeah, it's just like they, they sound incredible, and I think that's a part of it, too. I mean, when, when I interview a lot of bands these days, even like ones that are fairly successful on an indie rock level, they just talk about the importance of money. Yeah. Um, you know, to have some kind of security to, you know, write the music and, like, have it sound good and also to, like, promote it. I mean, this stuff matters, and at this time, like... Uh, you know, in the same way that, like, in, in you know, after Nirvana, like, major labels are going to, like, throw money at bands like, you know, the Melvins or whatever, or, like, <laughs> Fordhams. They would just throw money at these bands that might not otherwise, like, might otherwise put out, like, a boring or just, like, a nondescript album, but, like, they, you know, the money behind it, like, gives it the exposure, gives it the sound, and, you know what, I, I appreciate Long Way for that. Like, in a way, they're just as definitive of the time as the Strokes. Well, and they had like, you know, and by the way, they reunited this year, apparently. I did and, see that. And they're touring and they might make a new record. But like they, you know, they had this first record, The Strangest Things. It came out in 02. I don't remember this album really setting the world on fire or anything. It did not. But there were multiple videos made for it. And even like by their third record, There's a Fire, they were working with like John Leckie, who's like a pretty famous rock producer. And I'm assuming he wasn't cheap. No, I mean, board. he produced the Ben, so you could probably guess what they were going for there. And uh, My Morning Jacket Z. Right. So, you know, so even by like their third album, 
they were still, I mean, there, there was still some money behind them, apparently, to, to get John Lucky on board to work with them. Yeah. It, it really speaks to what you're saying that, you know, there was an idea that, like, wow, like a band like Longwave might be like a multi platinum band if we just spend enough money on them, which now you look at it and you're like, how, why in the world would anyone have thought that this band you know, would have been huge? Uh, but yeah, there really was that that sort of, I guess, you, you liken it to like the post-Nirvana sweepstakes of the 90s. There was that existing too in the early 2000s, even though none of these bands like sold as well as Nirvana or No, Pearl neither. Jam. They didn't even sell as well as like Local H, you know? Like... <laughs> right. But it was, you know, but you know, the, the, the implosion of the record industry was also happening at this time. This is also like when things were just rapidly falling apart. You got some, Derek? I just wanted to point out as someone who works at a rock station in 2018 that they, they still exist. They're still a thing. Oh, long wave? <laughs> Not long wave, but the radio stations. And um, I mean, there are, you know, look, yeah, there's still 21 pilots and Imagine Dragons. Well, and yeah, I know, like but that. like, but yeah, they but get signed. But, but, but I'm long wave of that. But I'm just, yeah, I'm just <laughs> yeah. saying that, like, yeah, they're at the top. But yeah, like, long wave is like at the second or maybe even third tier level. And like, for labels to be spending that much money on their third record. You know, yeah. when they've never had, you know, it just you don't get the third record anymore, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah it just speaks to how much more money there was that you could spend that amount of money on like a band like that. Um, but well, yeah, maybe John Leckie produced them because he thought he might get to the Strokes. <laughs> right? Yeah, maybe Julian Casablancas will walk in the studio at some point, or Albert Hammond Jr. Uh, <laughs> while they're recording this record. Um, you're going to talk about a band now that. It's actually, I mean, they've, they've kind of had like a longer career. I mean, they just put out a record, I think, a year or two ago, right? We're talking about Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Oh, yeah. Now... They've hung in there. Yeah, this band is interesting because, I mean, like, as you said at the top of the show, um, you know, they had the look, you know, the leather jackets, they had the hair, uh, they got their name from a Marlon Brando movie, and the influence, and also, here's another part of it that I think is maybe more unusual in 2018 like it might be tough for like younger people to grasp but i think along with the strokes uh they're one of those bands that from america who got big in the uk first yeah and when they came you know back over it's like wow who's this hype band from the uk i remember thinking that they were british at the time exactly that's how good it was but um <laughs> right but yeah i mean they they were interesting and like they're kind of like distilled in a way where they didn't like they were you know pure record collector rock but like theirs was more geared towards um the thing that kind of hailed them is that you know they're a jesus and mary chain ripoff which uh i mean not not even like psycho candy ripoff because like i mean that's like this was a very well produced album as well but like they were like more like major label uh, Jesus and Mary Chain, the stuff I would occasionally hear on the radio in the 90s. Right, and, like the uh, less cool Je- Jesus and Mary Chain Exactly. Records. Like, yeah, it's a, but um, yeah, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, they're an interesting sort of band in this kind of discussion, because you're right, they did put out a record recently, and once again, I'm not going to like use Los Angeles as being indicative of like the rest of the world, but like a little subsection of it is in that, like, I meet people who don't really keep up with music very much like but they're like an unusual number of people i meet like still like black rebel motorcycle club oh yeah they're like a band like they're there's this kind of like subsection of bands um and i think the best way to group them is like the desert days festival that happens in um 
you know, it's happening a couple of weeks from now, I think. You know, I think, um, like, My Bloody Valentine and, like, Tame Impala are playing it, but it's that sort of wave of, like, kind of psychedelic sort of band from, uh, you know, like, Brian's Jonestown Massacre. Yeah. And, like, you'll find out that, like, a band like Black Angels that is, like, super popular in ways that is unquantifiable, like, you know, in the music critic world. But, um, yeah, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club kind of got eventually lumped into that world, and they've been able to kind of sustain uh, a pretty decent career, at least, you know, compared to some of these other guys we talk about. But yeah, their first record... Um, I was going to say, like, they played First Avenue here in Minneapolis, which is like, you know, 2,000 people club or so. I mean, that's a pretty good, you know, not yeah. many bands can do that. No, so, I mean, and, and that was earlier this year that they did that. Yeah, and in, in a way, they speak to the both. Um, rock is dead. Like, you know, wh- whatever way you want to look at it, it's true because, you know, that I'm sure that I don't know how many young people are finding out about Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, but like the people who do like them, you know, there's still an audience out there for it. Right. Well, it's probably someone who bought that first record in, you know, '04, and they still have it in their car. Now, this is from 2001. Was it 2001? That early? Yeah, they actually it like came out before. Is this it? Oh, so I just remember that. Is that song "Love Burns" on that yeah. record? I remember liking that song. Yeah, I mean, I they also had a song "Whatever Happened to My Rock and Roll," which you know is <laughs> that it's so funny because like so many of these bands like are just. You know, it's like at the same time, like rock and roll is back. They were talking about like rock and roll being like dead or whatever. I mean, this is like the constant push and pull that always happens. Well, and they definitely had that Strokes thing too, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, like where they're wearing like the leather jackets on stage and like mm-hmm. the sunglasses and the promo photos. And it's very much about, you know, a f- like a very like rock, like R A W K type thing. Like we, you know, we, we've got the attitude and the look. And Yeah, but I heard they were like super nerdy in person. <laughs> Right. Well, I think you have to be to have that kind of romanticism for that kind of rock music. I mean, yeah, it's exactly. not the cool people that are into that. It's like the the record nerds that are that are into that sort of music. And I, you know, group myself into that, and probably you as well. But um, yeah, this is yeah. Th- they got kind of rootsy towards like the middle of the two thousands as well. I remember. Yeah, it was uh, with that record Howl that came yeah. out. That's sort of like, yeah, it's it's a little bluesier, maybe. Yeah, which is also funny because, like, I mean, you know, like, naming after Alec Ginsberg, I mean, it's like, this is the sort of stuff, like, especially, like, name yourself after the wild ones and, like, all those authors. It's like the joke nowadays, it's like, hey, this is like your, your, like, your high school boyfriend's, like, <laughs> book collection or something like that. <laughs> it's like, I bet they're really into Kerouac, too. It's like all that stuff that, like, could seem super-duper cool, like, you know, at the beginning of the 2000s, or at least to, like, you know, young people who are into rock, it's like a band like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club in, like, 2018 would just be, like, basically, like, beach slang. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the thing is about, you know, you can kind of look at it at in their time, there was sort of, like, an anachronistic thing about them, but when you're an anachronism, it also allows you to move through the times a mm-hmm. little bit easier than a lot of bands. Like, again, there's so many bands... Uh, from the early 2000s and and, and after that, that uh, it just evaporated into the air. You know, <laughs> that you, yeah. That you again, you only know, you, you only remember if you were alive at the time, and and it kind of you know it it reminds us that a lot of the bands that now that people think are really huge or important, or a lot of the artists um, are not going to be remembered in like two or three years. No. Nope. Um, so, uh, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, they kind of won. In the long run, I mean, they're still doing it, 
they're still doing they're still wearing the leather jackets in the shades so uh so yeah, good for them I mean, it's yeah it's 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 an interesting thing where it's like you know you can be like of the moment or just be kind of anachronistic and you know there are bands like right now who are we're you know will not be talking about like they're kind of popular but in 15 years you're just going to be like oh yeah they're going to be like the stills of their time like i I don't know who that band is, like Hippocampus. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do a podcast in like uh, 2033 on, on Hippocampus. We, we very well might. <laughs> um, speaking of bands that are like super trendy, the, the next band that you're going to talk about is a band that I, I, I definitely associate with the early 2000s. And I don't mean this in a negative way because I actually like their records, although I haven't listened to them in a while, but I remember <laughs> liking them. But uh, Hot Hot Heat. Oh yeah, <laughs> I just, like to me. Like if you were going to make a joke about early two thousands rock music, Hot Hot Heat would work as a punchline, just because it sounds like a very sort of early two thousands rock band name. This <laughs> this band really exists. Like I mean, even perhaps even more so than the Stills. Like this band is yeah, very early two thousands because they had the hair and like the kind of tight pants, and they were sort of you would describe them as like angular or whatever but they also had um one part we didn't talk about is like the kind of dance punk element of it as well like they weren't like you know like a dfa band the same way like the rapture were but you know you could dance to their music like it was very rhythmic and um you know they were also and i also (laughs) i've also seen them called like emo which is funny because um you know, they're like clearly like an indie rock band from Vancouver on Sub Pop, and actually one of the guys is in Wolf Parade now. But, you know, these are songs with like a really yelpy lead singer, just like really off key singing about like drinking and like girls and like how he's like really bad at both. And, um, and it's also kind of a soft launch for, I guess, the killers in a way. Like, you can draw like, a, like them as being like perhaps one of the avenues that get us from like the strokes to the killers. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, the first record, I just listened to that this morning cause you know, I like to do my homework and I just can't imagine something like this coming out now on sub pop. It's just, <laughs> let's make up the breakdown. Yeah. Make up the, and you know, they had some EPs before then that were really well regarded as well. But I mean, they, this is the sort of, you know, the sort of thing at the time where it's like, it is an indie rock record. It's not like slick, but it's catchy. Um, and just the kind of like. I mean, there was, you know, there was like obviously like some bad things happening in the world at the time, but it just seems like kind of unaware. Like music of that time is just like so apolitical, and this is just a record about like being young and drunk, like you know, naked in the city again. The first song, it's just about like um, just being like in your early twenties and just like getting fucked up and like you know striking out with like girls and like all that stuff. Which you know, as someone who was also like twenty two at the time and just like you know, getting out of college. It's like, oh yeah, this is like soundtrack of my life kind of stuff. Yeah, that is the weirdness about at least rock music at that time is that like, after 9-11 and, and then, you know, getting into two wars, people were not wanting to write songs about that. It was songs about, yeah, getting drunk and, and partying. And that, yeah. was the, that was the tenor of the time because people were just like, I need an escape. You know, things are too brutal now. And, and I kind of understand the logic of that. I mean, sometimes that is a nice thing about music that you could turn it on and get get a break i mean you know god knows that we could all use a break Mm -hmm. maybe more these days um 
I was also thinking about Hot Hot Heat. I don't know if this totally applies to them, but there was this weird moment around this time where there were a bunch of bands influenced by, like, late 70s XTC. Yeah, like, like kind of new wavy sort of thing. Which seems totally bizarre. Like, that seems insane to try to explain to someone now that, like, that was a touchstone for, like, many bands. Because that, that just seems like such like an obscure reference. Yeah. That or like, you know, kind of the early Elvis Costello or, yeah. um, yeah, there's just this new wave kind of thing going on, which of course, when you look at like what inner, like what, you know, the strokes were doing like television and, um, and you know, the Ramones, I mean like that stuff was happening alongside it as well. So it just speaks to the kind of like cyclical nature of rock music, at least for now. And like how, you know, these separate scenes from other eras, can just kind of meld together. Um, They're also sort of like late, like 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 early Cure, right? I mean, like, like they, I mean, they had a song cry. called "In Cairo" at the end of the record, which is you know like kind of a reference to a Cure song like uh, "Fire in Cairo." So yeah. Um, the, the last band we're going to talk about. This is a band. This is kind of controversial because you were disputing whether this band even belongs in this in this <laughs> podcast, and I and I made a case for them belonging because I feel like they are a sign of maybe the end of this era. Mm-hmm. And that is the bravery. Mm-hmm. And because the bravery, of course, I think if you remember them at all, it was because they had a short lived feud with the killers. Like yeah. they were perceived to be sort of a bald ripoff of, of the killers. And to me, that makes them interesting to include here because instead of bands following in the path of the strokes, now we have bands following in the path of the killers. And so that, so now they're the new standard bearers of, of uh, at least this kind of rock music. Um, but, you know, the, the, the Bravery, you know, they, they formed in 2003. So they became a band, you know, after it was clear that if you were a band in New York that you could actually become, if not rich, at least famous mm-hmm. for a while. And you can hear it in <laughs> certainly their first record, their self-titled record, which came out in 05, um, which... I mean, to me, it's like a very crass record. There's a very pre, like prefabricated uh, aspect of, of the record, um, but there's also songs on there that I think are sort of undeniable bangers. And starting with an honest mistake, which I think is like a, a really great single from this time, totally a disreputable single in a lot of ways. I mean, this band, like they wore the leather jackets. They had the lead singer with like it was sort of like a like a porcupine type bouffant thing. Yes. Um, they were sort of like taking everything that was sort of cool at the time or had been cool maybe two or three years earlier and repackaged it in, again, this very kind of crass package, sort of like a barely concealed uh, pop package, really. I, I don't think anyone ever looked at the bravery and thought, oh, yeah, these are like the authentic New York rockers, <laughs> as there was like with that was at least the mythology of the strokes, like when they first came out. Um, but the bravery were just like, oh, this, these are just totally rip-off carpetbaggers, you know, trend hoppers. Um, but they have good songs. And I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, this might be this decade's Stone Temple Pilots, you know? Yeah. Like the band that, like, has no authenticity but has a lot of, like, catchy songs. And they get, they, they get sustained by that way. Um, but that didn't really happen. I mean, I know their next record did pretty well it had that song uh believe on there yeah i never had a summer of 69 which is very very like um (laughs) it's i mean that's like a real like a powerful kind of statement like i just think that um (laughs) 
I'm, I'm like dead serious about it because you know it's just about like kind of like the false you know the the how nostalgia is like the kind of a false thing or whatever and just um, you know people these days might think you know I never had that kind of like you know the the summer of '69 or whatever like your song is like about like young reckless youth and just like kind of not being able to relate to that. I thought that was pretty profound, but um, yeah, I think we can't can't go any further without mentioning Scava the Hut. Um, that was like part of the, that was part of the beef they had with the killers where they, cause they used to be in a ska band. Right. Right. <laughs> which, like in the late nineties. Yeah. They more were in times, you know? Yeah. Which, you know, again, it, it speaks to how, you know, kind of like the stills moving with the trends in indie rock that, this was another band that it's like, oh, well, people are playing dancey New Order sounding records now. So, like, we're going to sound like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of mercenary thing that exists in music, which, you know, people question, but it's also a sign of, like, well, these are just strivers, you know, they're, they're, they're professionals the, yeah, going with where the audience is. Do you think this was, like, kind of the last time in rock and roll where you could sort of be considered a sellout and some of these credibility issues that I've dogged a couple of these bands have talked about. Like, I feel like those are things that don't really exist in today's Because well, there's not, discussion. what are you going to sell I out mean, for, you yeah. know? Well, I, I will say that any band that becomes really popular is usually subject to not being called a sellout, but I think... it's, it's, it's Nowadays, it, they call you an industry plant. Yeah, or right. or that, I mean, it, that's the that's the funny thing about, like, the sort of poptimism thing is that... Uh, it doesn't really apply to rock bands that get really popular. Like, like a band like Coldplay, for instance, that yeah. is like, uh, you know, whatever you, what else you want to say about them. I mean, if you're a pop music fan, there's certainly great pop music aspects to Coldplay, but yeah. they're an automatic punchline. Because, or the Foo Fighters being another band uh, that, you know, Foo Fighters have, if you look at their history, I mean, you know, Dave Grohl was in Nirvana. They certainly put out really well-respected records in the 90s. Uh, but they're sort of looked at as like almost. I mean, I, I hear people liking them to, like to Nickelback or something now. Yeah, I mean, um, they're like kind of a more credible version of that, or like they're seen as like I don't know, like the same level as like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, where they're just this band that like releases a new record like every four years, gets like three and a half stars in Rolling Stone, they headline a festival, and like that's you know that's it's like clockwork, you know. Yeah, I, I just can't think of like a scenario like where a band could get really popular, a rock band, and also still have credibility anymore. I, I just feel like um, it's not set up that way. To, well, it's it's, to the, glitch in, it's like the glitch that. in the Poptimist Matrix, because, like, you know, you <laughs> right. can't really, like... I mean, a lot of it is, like, a cult of personality, which kind of, even if you do have a very compelling frontman, it's like you're still a band. Right. You can't look at a band and say, that you know, that's me. Like, you can't use that as, like, kind of an avatar for... I don't know your your view of the world, but you know, also it's like I don't think any like yeah, it just doesn't apply to Imagine Dragons. But like I listen to Imagine Dragons too, and I'm like, I don't like this. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, they're a punchline, I think, for a lot of people too. Seems yeah, like. I yeah. mean, because yeah. like a lot of that stuff is pretty fucking bad. <laughs> <laughs> Derek is always inserting Imagine Dragons into uh, episodes here. You're, <laughs> I feel like I have like, I know, I, I, I have like the Imagine Dragons button and then you, I, you will insert them into a conversation. Is, I don't actually like their music. <laughs> yeah, I but I do think I they did, get a bad man. rap. Like, yeah, yeah. They're, they're like an interesting talking point. I feel like they're more fun to talk about than yeah, listen it's like, to. I, I feel like I've like... Like that—that's what makes me feel old. That like I don't like I don't know like who my who my current version of like the Stills or the Bravery or like 
you know, these corny ass rock bands. That well, I like, feel like you and I are on the same page on the last Mumford and Sons record where they like ripped off the National. Like, they had like two good. There was like a couple of good songs. On totally. That, like you're at Ralph's every now and again. Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll defend like I'll I'll go up four songs on that album that I think are like pretty solid like songs that like if they came on in a bar I would be like oh yeah this is yeah, which I mean, that will never happen or even like Kings of Leon like I mean I never liked them but I mean you, it's still like yeah I guess oh I'll like, defend Kings of Leon I, I, I'm on their I'm on their team I, I even came around on their bad albums like <laughs> uh, or the or the, like the Come Around Sundown era oh yeah where, <laughs> the Come Around Sundown where they were That's making that's the first time I ever hear it. But like then again, it's like they're a band that kind of emerged from this as well and like they wouldn't have gotten to uh that come around sundown era had they not had that sort of infusion of like money and hype at the beginning, you know. Right. And you know, I just didn't you know, I didn't bring them up in this conversation because yeah, they're they're they transcend. Yeah, they're on the top tier. <laughs> I saw them on a co headline tour with Secret Machines actually, so just to bring that full circle. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That would that would have been like oh seven or something. Uh, that would it was earlier than that. I uh, think that would have been, been like oh three or oh, oh, like Aha uh-huh Shake era. Oh yeah, that'd have been good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you got weird combinations like that too. Like I remember, like people saying like they saw the Strokes opening for Doves. Oh yeah, <laughs> it, you know, brings in the whole like you know fake radio <laughs> sort of. <laughs> oh man, that, that that makes me think we have to do an episode like this about like the British wing. Of oh this, yeah, because like, the Doves would be in there. <laughs> Like all this sort of, you know, well, you were talking about Keen the other day oh, on, yeah. on Twitter. Yeah, they're like the kings of Leon from like... Uh, from like the Coldplay angle. Yes. You know, all, all the like Coldplay following bands. Although, but again, I, the Coldplay... I do think this kind of like brings it like full circle in the sense of like there was just, there was an industry that was like supporting like rock music of all stripes. So, yeah, you know, it's like you could... You know, you listen to the radio, you heard, like, Jimmy Eat World, and you heard, like, The Strokes, and you heard, like, Coldplay. I mean, like, they were, like, clearly like, different sort of waves, but at the same time, it was like, this is what you heard when you listened to rock radio. Yeah, and, and so and now it, it's just, like, you associate them all kind of the same in a weird way. And also, again, just, like, the ability to have, like, that second tier, where, yeah. again, you're always going to have, like, the superstar acts, but sometimes... Mm-hmm when you go back and you revisit some of these eras, it's it's more fun to look at those those sort of second tier bands that were that were good, not great, but they also weren't as rammed down your throat. So there's there's room for pleasant surprises sometimes with with, with some of these bands and that's what I'm hoping for us doing this uh episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think all si- I think all six of these bands, there's tunes. There's at least like a song or two that that's great. And some of them have whole albums that are great. Yeah. Most of them don't have multiple albums that are great. But again, you know, to have just one album that's really good. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. So, um, all right, man. Well, put it on your calendar. We got to do a British version of this at some point. Oh, yeah. I'm going to bone up on turn <laughs> breaks and elbow. and. Oh, yeah. I mean, not that I have to. Like, this stuff is already very, very <laughs> to the forefront of my memory. But, you know, just, just like... JJ72, Star Sailor. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I'm like already excited. Oh, me too, man. <laughs> awesome. Ian, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks, for, making a, thanks for taking time. We'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. All right, later. All right, man. Take care. All right, that was me and Ian talking about it. And, you know, I think we have to do that British episode. What do you think? I'm so in for that. <laughs> you, you need someone to talk block party? I'm here for Oh, you. yeah. We got to talk about block party. Yeah. yeah. It's so funny because like, the more you talk about this era, it just jogs the memory. Like, There's so many bands that I have not thought about in probably 10 years. Yeah. And then 
you punch it into Spotify and you're like, oh, this is actually pretty good. I might listen to this again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when when Ian was talking about Doves, I was like, ooh, pulling that up on oh, Spotify yeah. <laughs> right now. Doves? I think Doves had multiple good records. Yeah, they did. All right. So thanks again for listening, everyone. Thanks again to the man who makes it happen, Derek Madden, who's off listening to the Doves right now. Uh, thank you to Josh Copperman for writing our theme song. And of course, again, thank you to all of you Celebration Rock Pod listeners for supporting us. We would not be here without you. So so thank you for leaving reviews of our podcast on iTunes and talking about us on social media and telling your friends about us. The word of mouth is always the best advertising. So thanks again, everyone. Uh, we will be back again next week with more Celebration Rock. Until then, uh, take it easy. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. How wrestling really works and how you get the ratings. Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson explain on 83 weeks. This is indeed the first WrestleMania without Vince McMahon. I mean, it's about as horrible as it can get, but does erasing that history make it any better? Everybody's being careful not to celebrate Vince McMahon. I think you can acknowledge him without celebrating him. I think that's the double-edged sword that everybody's sort of carrying for now. 83 weeks on YouTube or wherever you listen.